0: Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you've got your Bible handy, open up to the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. There's a very memorable story found here in 1 Kings chapter 3. From its words, we learn a number of valuable lessons about wisdom, love, and sacrifice, especially in the manifestation of motherly love. If only every person could consider the example of the unnamed woman in this story and mimic her love, then far fewer children would go through life unwanted and miserable. In this section of scripture, we see how remarkably the promise of God is fulfilled in 1 Kings 3, verse 12. Behold, I have given you, that is, to King Solomon, David's son, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And in the following account, Solomon's magnificent wisdom is put on display, in a way that no other man would have thought to handle it. If you're not familiar with Solomon's story, he was the son of King David. And Solomon received incredible wealth and incredible wisdom when God came to him in a vision and said, Because of the love that I had for your father David, I'll offer you anything that you ask. Anything that you ask. And Solomon's response really impressed God. Instead of asking for wealth or military power or that sort of thing, something physical, something carnal, Solomon asked God for wisdom. Because of this incredible answer, God granted him both. He granted him incredible wealth and otherworldly wisdom. So here's an example of that. In 1 Kings 3, beginning in verse 16, Then two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, Oh, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. And it happened on the third day after I gave birth that this woman also gave birth to a child, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, only the two of us in the house. Now, there are some things that are unclear from the text before we begin an explanation of the story. The Hebrew word for harlot can sometimes be interpreted as innkeeper or hostess, so the automatic assumption that either or both of these women is a prostitute might be a bit hasty. On the other hand, it is clear that the two children were born out of wedlock, and it is suspicious that the women lived together. In any case, the situation is a very lamentable one. It's sad that so many people go through life and dig themselves into one hole after another, seemingly uninterested in even trying to make their lives better. Here we have two women of the same general background, probably practicing the same disreputable profession, and apparently both impregnated at about the same time. Neither of them seems to be questioning their decisions in life, only stating the facts so plainly that one wonders how remorseful they actually are. The difference between them, though, is the way in which one of them vindicates herself later in the story. Now, as an optimist, I'd like to believe that her new child and his near-death experience would motivate her to repair her life and try something better for herself, but we're not granted that information in the Bible. After this story is over, we don't get to find out what ends up happening to this woman and her child. We don't hear the rest of the story, so we're left to just wonder. Unfortunately, not much has changed in our modern society. People are still bunking together in shabby little homes, busily making a small sum off the abuse of their bodies. Men and women are still having unwanted children together at an alarming rate, and they bring them into a world of abuse, of drugs, and sexual impurity. Although now there's the clever answer of abortion, I wonder, would, would either of these two women have opted for an abortion if it had been available to them in that time period. Beyond that, the first woman is not good at checking her facts when choosing a roommate. If she had known more about the second woman in the story, perhaps she would have seen that she was the kind of person who feels no remorse at either stealing a baby or simply letting it get chopped into pieces, again, as we'll find out if we keep reading here in the story. So in the first few verses, many of the facts are laid out. Both of these women had little babies at about the same time. There was nobody else in the house, no witnesses, no strangers, just the two women and their two babies. Verse 19, and this woman's son died in the night because she lay on it. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from beside me while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead son in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him carefully in the morning, behold, he was not my son whom I had born. Good people often have to suffer because of the ineptitude of foolish people. Because the second woman neglected the needs of her child and crushed him in the night by rolling on top of him, the first woman now had to deal with the ramifications. Essentially, she's being forced to pick up the tab of a neglectful mother. Proverbs 14, verse 1 says, The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Even at this point, the differences between the first and second woman are becoming very clear. While both of them had clearly made mistakes in life, at least one of them had the sense, the discipline, and the motherly love to take care of her son. The first woman sleeps with her baby and is eager to wake up in the morning to nurse it. The second woman, however, can't even keep her baby alive. In fact, she's so horrible that she believes the other woman won't even be able to tell the difference between the two babies. That any mother would not be able to tell her baby from another baby is simply ridiculous. There were no witnesses, however, and it became a matter of my word against hers. What do we do when faced with this? What's the appropriate response? Well, I appreciate, first of all, that the women came to the king. That they wanted to go to somebody trustworthy, somebody reliable, a third party, somebody that didn't have a vested interest in either of their cases, but could answer or find some kind of a solution to this. So we read here in verse 23, the king said, The one says, this is my son who is living, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, no, for your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Fetch me a sword. Probably not the answer that either of the women was looking for. (laughs) So the text says they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose child was the living one spoke to the king, for she was deeply stirred over her son and said, My lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. And the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. It's clear that only drastic measures would reveal the true mother's identity. From the text, we see that it was indeed the wisdom of God that led Solomon to pronounce this judgment. This means that God sometimes expects us to do some things that don't make sense to us at the time, or things that even seem risky. The wisdom of God leads us to take drastic steps in dealing with sin in our lives, as well as the lives of our brethren and those outside the church. The wisdom of God leads us to take drastic steps in teaching the gospel. It leads us to take drastic steps in maintaining doctrinal purity in the church. We seem like odd people, strange people to our worldly friends or family members because of the moral stands that we'll take, because we've drawn a line in the sand that corresponds to God's line in the sand. So we seem like otherworldly people. We seem like we don't fit, like we don't belong. The truth is often very drastic. Well, God certainly doesn't want us to chop babies in half. He does want our faith to be manifested in such a completely obedient way that we would do anything for him, including sacrificing a son like Abraham did. If you remember the story from the book of Genesis, where God asked Abraham to do something by faith that Abraham neither understood nor wanted to do, and yet he did it. He obeyed God. And God didn't force him to do anything that was violent. God didn't force him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He was vindicated. God allowed Abraham, though, to go almost the entire way before accepting that his faith had been tested. How far do we think Solomon had to raise his sword above the baby before the mother began to plead for his life? Sometimes when we are pushed to the limits, pushed to the very maximum of what we're capable of, that's when we find out who we really are. Untested, undisciplined, untrained lives do not reveal the genuine version of you. Now, these two mothers had an argument. These two mothers were pushed to the very brink. And when push came to shove, or rather when the sword was wielded and the baby's life was on the line, they revealed who they really were. The true intent, the true nature, the true character of these women was fully revealed. So I think it's appropriate to make an application here. Often when we're pushed to the limit, we wonder, why is God doing this to me? Why am I being tested right now? Why am I being pushed right now? Why is some part of my life being taken away from me or stretched to its very maximum? And we raise our fist into the air and we we cry out, why, God? Why? Well, maybe one reason why we're allowed to go through those things, perhaps one of the reasons why God in his providence even makes things come upon us, is to test us and push us so that we can find out who we actually are. And it's only when you find the limit, it's only when you have been pushed that you really know what you're made out of. A couple of verses, I think, that reveal this. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read a little bit about God's discipline. Now, this is overt action on God's part. This is God providentially disciplining us in some way. But notice here, in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. "'God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there with whom his father does not discipline?' But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. And he goes on to say in the next couple of verses that we all had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we thank them for it. We're grateful that they disciplined us. Even though sometimes it was imperfect discipline, even though maybe they might have been the ones who were wrong, we're still thankful for what discipline produces in us. In verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, no mother, and I think that is just so important to say that, that no mother in her right mind would want to see her baby chopped in half with a sword. No mother in her right mind would want to see her baby chopped in half by a sword. So one of the women pleads with King Solomon, Let him live. Give it to the other woman. Because she would rather see her child alive and living with somebody else than chopped in half. The other woman, however, says, Fine, chop him in half. He's my baby, but if it's not going to be mine, then I'm not going to let him have yours either. Chop him in half and give us each part. That's not the real mother. Solomon knew that. Now, Solomon might not have known that, though, if he hadn't pushed them to this limit. In a case of my word against yours, Solomon had to get to the root. He had to get to the bottom of this, and he had to push them, test them, try them to see who they really were. Now go to the book of James, and James says something similar here about suffering. In James chapter one, consider it all joy, my brethren, verse two, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I know it's not easy to face times of trial. It's not easy being tested. It's not easy being disciplined. It's not easy finding out what the the limits of your emotions are, the limits of your sanity. It's not easy. But when you experience it, you do get to find out just how strong you are, just how loving you are, just how much you care. This mother will never look at her child the same way ever again. And hopefully she'll never approach parenting the same way ever again. The woman who gets to go home with her baby, alive and well, having proven her love, she also gets to walk away not just with a living child, but she also gets to walk away with knowledge. She gets to walk away with experience, with appreciation, with gratitude. She gets to walk away very humbled by this experience. She will never be the same person again, at least We hope that she'll never be the same person again. But this story also shows us just how terrible arguments can be. Do we ever find ourselves arguing over something, even to the point that it is no longer about the object of the conflict? We just don't want to be wrong about it? How many of us risk everything for pride's sake? Do we ever reach a point at which we would do harm to our reputations, to our families? to ourselves just to prove somebody wrong or ignore the needs of our families just to accomplish some selfish end, to to split up a church, a church just because we refuse to admit that we're wrong about something. This is what arguments do. Arguments push people to the brink. Arguments push people to the level of bitterness that would say, I'd rather see a baby chopped in half than admit that I was wrong. That's what arguments bring about. With the last few minutes of our radio program, I want to offer two primary observations, two lessons to take away from this story. The first is this. Some things are worthless when they're divided. Of what value would a child be to anybody if it's dead? The second woman had become so jaded and cynical because of the death of her own son that she now desired the death of the other woman's son as well. She's basically arguing that if she has to be miserable, then everybody else around her has to be miserable too. If she's going to be childless, then so is her roommate. The problem with this attitude, of course, is that it's selfish. She obviously never understood the wisdom behind Romans 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Instead of trying to draw the attention to herself, and force everybody to be sad because of her loss, she should have rejoiced that her friend's baby was alive and healthy. Perhaps if she had lived more unselfishly, her attitude would have been reciprocated, and she would have been comforted in her tragedy. Many people today live like this. They always want the spotlight to be on themselves. They want others to be angry about the same things as themselves. They want others to cry when they cry. They want others to stop sobbing and laugh when they want to be surrounded by laughter. It is a selfish way to live. And now this second woman is so selfish that she just wants everybody to be childless. What are some other things that are useless when they're divided in half? How about beautiful paintings? Surely nobody wants part of a Van Gogh or a Monet. Collector's cards? What about a novel? What good is the first half of a novel if there's no ending to it? What good is the second half of a novel if there's no context or introduction of the characters? What about something even more precious, like God's church? What good is a divided congregation to the advancement of the gospel, especially if it is only divided over petty issues, or opinion, or misunderstanding? Jesus had prayed for the unity of the church in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. And he said in Matthew chapter 12, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Consider the sad condition of the church in Corinth in the first century, which was so divided over worthless issues that Paul had to condemn them in chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. They were suing each other. And by suing each other and arguing with each other over business arrangements, Paul concluded, it is already a defeat for you. Now, while it's essential that we each put up a fight for the defense of the gospel, we also need to understand that a divided congregation does about as much good as a baby that's been chopped in half. Not only are the lost left in sin, but the brethren grow more and more hateful toward each other. What a defeat that becomes! What a waste. At a very basic level, one of the most worthless things when divided is our loyalty, whether it be in a spiritual sense or even in a secular sense. Jesus stated plainly in Matthew 6 verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, otherwise known as riches or earthly wealth. It's impractical and unfair to everybody involved if we try to work for two competing companies. It's impossible to play for two opposing sports teams. And in the same way, we cannot serve God and human institutions. A lot of us would love to ride the fence on religious issues. And we'd like to please everybody and never make any enemies. But Luke 6 verse 26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. But here's the second big application I see, the, the second big lesson from this story, that the sword can't solve all of our problems. Now remember, for generations of Israelites in the Old Testament, the sword could do nothing but bring trouble. There was constant fighting from within and without for the people of God. While it's true that they gained some great military victories, we also have to realize that the only truly lasting victories were the ones that were accomplished by God. What's most encouraging, though, is that God's victories never even needed the sword. We should be impressed by the fact that God can use anybody, any weapon, in any way he desires to bring about the redemption of his people. Our God has no need for the conventional tools of mankind. Notice a few things about some of the heroes from the book of Judges. Uh, God doesn't need a great army to defeat the Philistines in Judges 3 verse 31. Only a single man named Shamgar with no weapon, but an ox goad. God needs nothing more than a left-handed Benjamite named Ehud to assassinate the mighty king of the Moabites. Or in Judges 4, God is able to defeat the mighty Sisera with only the help of jail and a tent peg. Judges chapter 7, God begins with 22,000 available men but ends up choosing only 300 to defeat the Midianites. God uses Jephthah, the son of a harlot, in Judges 11. A single man named Samson killed thousands of Philistines with nothing more than his bare hands and a bone. Even more remarkably, God needs nobody to decimate the Philistines when the ark is captured in 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5. The sword was not the answer in the garden, When the soldiers came to take away our Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew 26, verse 51, and it is only by the blood of Christ's self-sacrifice that our sins can be washed away. The sword is never the answer when dealing with our enemies today. In Romans 12, verses 17 through 21, we are exhorted, we are commanded even, to leave room for the wrath of God, to never take our own revenge, but instead, to be kind to our enemies, and to love them, to share with them, to be gentle, to be unselfish. The sword cannot save us in any spiritual sense, and even in most physical situations. Instead of always fighting and trying to divide each other, like the jaded woman who would rather have a half-dead baby than see her friend's joy with a living one, we ought to trust in the Lord and let Him lead us into glory. One can imagine that this near-death experience led the baby's mother to rethink her life and her relationships. How lucky she is that King Solomon dealt with the problem in such a timely and godly manner. Now let's consider just how lucky we are that God deals with us in an even more righteous fashion. We do not deserve his mercy, yet he extends it so freely to all of us who would obey. Remember what it says in Mark 16, verse 16. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. What an incredible invitation. And what an unexpected, otherworldly way of approaching the problem of sin. And of both spiritual and physical death. So if you'd like to study any of these things more, if you'd like to learn more about the Bible, about God, about Jesus Christ, then please reach out to Monta Vista. We'd love to sit down and and have that Bible study with you today.